Before we conduct our study tonight, there's just a few things we need to make sure we have rightly defined in our minds. Oftentimes when you hear the word cult, your mind might naturally go to, you know, those weird paranormal things, those weird dark witchcrafty sort of, ooh, this is just demonic. And that is more properly defined as the occult from occulter, which means concealed or hidden. When we use the word cult, we aren't referring to the occult. Occult is very different. It's a word from the Latin cultus, which is basically a word meaning worship. It's a group that looks like Christian worshipers. They really are kind of like wolves in sheep's clothing. They, they look the part. They walk the walk and even almost talk the talk. But upon closer inspection, you discover this is really nothing like Christianity. In other words, we're not talking about Baptists versus Presbyterians. We're talking about Christianity versus something altogether different. And so tonight, we're going to look at perhaps the most famous of the Christian cults. And it's one that might even, I dare say, shock some of you to be defined as a Christian cult. But I have a feeling that after I conduct our study tonight, you will leave fully satisfied with that fitting description. So why don't you join me as we pray? Let's ask God to help us, and then we'll conduct our study. Father in heaven, I thank you for these brothers and sisters, and I'm asking that you would supernaturally sustain my voice, grant me strength and clarity of mind. You know how foggy my mind feels right now, Lord, so would you, would you help me? And would you help me be faithful and charitable and right and honest? I want to speak that which is helpful and true and not create a caricature to be unhelpful. I want to do this, Lord, so that we, your people, our faith would be strengthened, our souls would be stirred, we would be built up, and we would be able to testify to those caught in this cult about the hope that we have within us. And I'm asking this in Jesus' name. Amen. The cult, that's our subject tonight, is Mormonism. Now, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word Mormon. Maybe it's people. Invariably, perhaps the most famed image when it, you think of a Mormon are those white shirt-dressed young men riding their bicycles, the Mormon missionaries all over the town. Or perhaps you might be familiar with arguably the most famous Mormon of the last 50 years, the uh, famed Mitt Romney, who ran for president and 2008 and 2012. Maybe you're familiar with Glenn Beck. He was famous on Fox News and other uh, channels, a, a well-known Mormon. Donnie Marie Osmond, did you know they were Mormons? Maybe your, your mind goes towards people, or maybe you're thinking more of places. When you, when you think the word Mormon, your mind very quickly goes to, okay, you've seen those big, white, beautiful uh, Mormon temples, or those gold statues at the top, or maybe you've driven by uh, on the highway and you've seen the little meeting house that says Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You're like, I, I know that's Mormon. I wonder what that's all about. Maybe, maybe your mind goes there. 
Or maybe you, your mind goes to these places, you know, you, you think of not just the temple, but maybe you're thinking Salt Lake City in particular, because that seems to be a real locus of Mormonism, Utah in general, it's filled with Mormons. Or, or maybe you're not really going to people or places, but you're thinking about particular practices that you just know are a little odd. You don't hear this too often. For example, growing up, I had a good friend that lived one street behind me who was a Mormon. And it never made any sense to me that when we would hang out together, one great treat that I rarely got to have as a kid, but when I got it, man, it was like you struck the jackpot, was when mom would let you finally have a can of soda because we never got to drink it. Well, it always confused me that when I would finally get to have one of those cans of pop that I wanted, that he could never have any. In fact, the only soda he could drink was root beer, which incidentally is my favorite, but I always thought, why, why is that the only one he can drink? Come to find out, it's because root beer is one of the few sodas that's not caffeinated, and Mormons have a deep conviction about abstaining from caffeinated beverages. They often abstain from coffee and tea and soda, they, in fact, they tend to abstain altogether from all addictive substances. So alcohol, they tend to stay away from. They often, as a generalization, stay away from narcotic pain medication, etc. So maybe there's some of those odd practices. I wonder how many of you are quickly having your mind go to, wait, I thought I heard, aren't those Mormons, aren't, those, they, aren't they those polygamists? They got all those wives, you know, you see on TLC, sister wives, that's just a bunch of Mormons. Who are these people? Tonight, what I want to do is I want to help us understand who Mormons truly are. Who are they? <coughs> Pardon me. Where do they come from? What do they believe? What, what do they base their beliefs on? What are their key, core, authoritative texts that undergird everything they believe? We're going to try to answer several questions tonight so that when we're done, we will be able to faithfully relay, perhaps to a Mormon himself, what it actually believes. I was greatly encouraged because I taught through this whole series at the Mallet Creek campus last month. And there's a little bit of nervousness that comes with teaching about a cult to a group of people. When I know in any crowd I teach to, there are invariably somebody who's either got a family member or perhaps somebody themselves is a part of that group and they're just here on a Wednesday night. And so I want to make sure I know what I'm talking about. Well, I got an email just this past week from a brother who had listened to my talk on Seventh-day Adventism, which is going to be taught next week, um, but I had already taught it at our Mallard Creek campus. And I knew this particular individual who sent me the email was from a Seventh-day Adventist family. And so the minute I see in the subject line, foundations, I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> and before the Lord... It was the most encouraging, I mean, one of the greatest emails I've received in 12 years of ministry at Hickory Grove. This email, this young man detailed out not only what he learned, but how appreciative he was of the tone and tenor, the care, the conviction, but also the charity as I tried to parse what they actually believe and what we believe. And so I'm asking that the Lord would give me the grace to do that again tonight. I am not trying to mock. I am not trying to create a caricature. What I want to do is be faithful so that we can leave this place knowing who they are, what they believe, what they base their beliefs on, and what differentiates them from we Christians who believe the gospel of Christ, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so let's begin 
at the beginning. Let's detail the story of Mormonism. What is the history of the Mormon faith? I want to use an analogy to help us trace the story. I think this analogy will help you guys hang some thoughts. In the same way that a plant starts as a seed in the soil, and then it starts to take root, and those roots will yield a shoot that comes out of the ground and that will eventually bear fruit, I want to use that same analogy to help us see the growth of Mormonism. Now, here's what's really interesting. The soil from which it sprung is relatively new. What's interesting is Judaism's soil is as old as the Old Testament. Christianity's soil, even if you're a liberal, it's at least as old as 2,000 years ago. Of course, we believe it's as old as, you know, the world. Hinduism's soil is several thousand years old. Islam's soil is, you know, some 1,500, 1,600 years old. Mormonism's soil <coughs> is younger than our country. In fact, it began in the United States in the 1800s. It was in the region of New England, upstate New York. During the mid-1800s, there was a phenomenon called the Second Great Awakening. Anybody familiar with the Second Great Awakening? The Second Great Awakening was this movement of revivals that broke out all over the United States. But there was a big difference between most of the revivals of the Second Great Awakening and those of the First Great Awakening. Those of the First Great Awakening, those that were reared by men like Jonathan Edwards, they were genuine spirit-wrought revivals. You saw genuine Christianity take a flame. In the Second Great Awakening, something perverse happened. Preachers learned a dirty little secret. They learned what I learned many years ago. Do you want to know what's tragic in many American churches? Many American churches are misled by pastors into believing that because people are walking down the aisle making a decision or because there are lots of kids signing a card at a VBS, that that was proof of the Spirit moving. And the truth is, most pastors can tell you that it is actually quite easy to manipulate a crowd into making a decision in the moment. Billy Graham is even famously to have attested that over his 50-plus years of gospel preaching ministry, he estimated over 80% of those who came forward in his crusades were not genuine. That they were, he didn't, of course, intend to mislead them, but that they came forward as false converts, that they didn't actually last. It's actually proven that there are a lot of false, fake revivals. And the Second Great Awakening was one great movement of false, fake revivals. These revivalists were hucksters. They would come across and they would basically just like whip up a crowd and get them to make a profession of faith. Well, this began to happen in upstate New York, but what happens once the guy leaves town? No real discipleship happens. There's no root. They wither and die. But it's like everybody in the town, instead of getting the real thing, it's like they got inoculated. They now feel like, you know what, I don't really need Christianity anymore. And you started to see this effect all throughout New England where people started to think, you know what, who, I, I, this doesn't really change you. you. Everybody's still living the same way. So you started to see just a bunch of cultural Christianity take root in New, in New York. There are all these denominations fighting together. And pretty soon, it's as if the fires of revival spread all through New York and then burned it all up. 
And what happens when a wildfire burns through a field? What's left is nothing but charred remains. So too, New York was a spiritual wasteland. Now, if you're familiar with a burned over field, what is the first thing to sprout up after a field has been burned out? <coughs> Usually it's the most rigorous of plants. It's a weed. And weeds, spiritually speaking, began to prop up in this field of New York. One such weed sprouted in a family that had the unfortunate name I share, Smith. There was a family called the Smith family from Palmyra, New York. They had several children, 11. Their fourth child was a young man named Joseph. Joseph was a, uh, one of those boys that was kind of questioning mom and dad. He didn't like all the denominational strife. He was really bothered by everything he was seeing. He was also kind of his own Nicolas Cage-style treasure hunter. He loved trying to find all these little treasures all over that region of New York. Well, one day he had a dream. It was in 1820. He is reported to have this vision or this dream. And in this vision or this dream, young Joseph Smith believed that the father and the spirit came to him and gave him a message. And that message was that all the denominations were wrong, that Christianity had become corrupted, that everything he had heard in these revivals was wrong. And so he awoke from this dream with this deep bother and this deep conviction that everything was bad and wrong. Three years later, in 1823, he reports that he had the second of two major visions. But in this second vision, he was not confronted by the Father and the Spirit. He was confronted by an angel. This angel had a name. The name was Moroni, M-O-R-O-N-I. You need to mark the name down, Moroni. It's a significant name in Mormon history. By show of hands, have any of you ever seen a Mormon temple before? Have any of you all noticed what's at the top of every Mormon temple? There's always a gold statue. And that gold statue is a statue of an angel. And that gold angelic statue is an angelic statue of Moroni, this angel that appeared to Joseph in this second dream. Now, in this second dream, when he confronts the angel Moroni, Moroni appeals. I find this a little too convenient that Moroni appealed to Joseph's inner Nicolas Cage sense of wanting to find national treasures. Moroni reportedly tells Joseph, the Spirit and the Father told you that everything's wrong. I'm going to tell you what's right, and here's where you're going to find what's right. I have hidden some golden tablets. They are buried in a hill outside of town that's called the Hill of Kumora. C-U-M-O-R-A-H. You can go to that hill to this day. It's a famous site in Mormonism. Buried in this hill are a couple tablets. On these tablets are ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. He actually called it Reformed Egyptian, which doesn't make any sense. It's what he called it. And on these tablets, if you can go dig them up and find them, there is going to be two decoders. I mean, doesn't it feel like we're in the movie National Treasure right now? There's some decoders. 
And these decoders are going to help you interpret what the hieroglyphs say. And so he goes and he finds them. He unearths them and then he begins to slowly but surely translate them with these seer stones to figure out what that book says. Well, as he begins to slowly translate out everything that he found on the golden tablets hidden in the mountain of Hill of Kumora as directed by the angel Moroni, guess what he discovers? He discovers the craziest story you have ever heard. This is the story about the lost people of God. Who, by the way, do we call the people of God in the Bible? Israel. That's the chosen people of God. Well, according to Mormonism, this is what they believe happened to the people of God. They believe that the ancient people of Israel, right on the brink of being sent into exile, so roughly 600 B.C., which, of course, we believe this history. We believe that God's people were about to be sent into exile around 600 B.C. The southern kingdom of Israel was about to be taken by Babylon into captivity. They believe that there was a prophet named Lehi of the people of Israel who was given a warning by God to escape so that he wouldn't be taken into exile. <clears throat> and so this prophet, this is where it gets really crazy, he takes a group of God's people, he gets on a boat, and he escapes Israel. And guess where he goes? To the great U.S. of A. They migrate over to the United States on a boat. And upon landing in the United States, they integrate with the people of the land. And while there, learn that this people, these are actually God's chosen people, that these are actually the people that God has chosen, the Native Americans of the American continent, American Indians. These folks, these are God's chosen people. But to make a much longer story short, the book tells us that all the people end up dying out. And after they end up all dying out, it's as if nothing happened. Until one day, one of the prophets, the one lone survivor of this group of people that had migrated over, he buried the story of this people in this hill, and God sent Joseph to come find it. Now, before we go any further, guess who wrote those tablets? It wasn't Moroni. It was Moroni's daddy. And the name of Moroni's daddy is going to help explain why we call these folks Mormons. Moroni's dad was named Mormon. And Mormon wrote all these words on these hieroglyphic tablets. And today, if you want to read what those tablets reportedly said, you can go on Amazon. And it's a very famous book. I bet you know the title of it. It's called The Book of Mormon. Today, you can go read this fantastic tale of how God's people got taken from the nation of Israel and wandered across the sea over to the United States, where there they ended up basically killing each other. They died off until at last God found a man who was going to come and resurrect the true faith that had been lost from years ago. Now, some of you may be thinking, Pastor, I, I know they're called Mormons, and now I understand where that name came from. But I know they also go by another name. What's the other name that Mormons go by? Latter-day Saints. 
Where'd they get that name? Well, actually, now as you think about it, it's going to make sense. Their belief is that the former day saints were the people of Israel. They got corrupted. They escaped. The rest of Israel was terrible. The church was formed. The church is a corrupt beast. That's their big shtick as they hate Catholicism, they hate Protestantism, they hate the Christian church. Now God has at last decided to resurrect what he had many years ago. The former day saints are gone. He is now going to create a new church, a church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Finally, the church has been recovered. It's been renewed. It's been restored. And God is going to do it through his chosen prophet, a man named Joseph Smith. So now you're thinking, well, what does Joseph change about it? What does Joseph do differently than, you know, your local Presbyterian or Congregationalist church? Well, Joseph wants to recreate basically primitive Christianity. So instead of going back to the days of Jesus, he goes back to the days of the Old Testament. And back in the days of the Old Testament, he finds a few things. He finds that in the Old Testament, they didn't worship in meeting houses. Where did they worship? A temple. So he began to build temples because he wanted a temple to mirror the old practice of worship, which is why the temple is so central to the Mormon faith. He also went back and he recognized, okay, well, you know what's interesting? Who were the people that led the church back in the Old Testament? It wasn't pastors. It was, well, the priests. So he resurrected the priesthood. And we need to have this priesthood uh, enacted to help our religion function. He also went back to the Old Testament and he realized most of those guys didn't have one wife but they had two, three, five, ten, sometimes hundreds of wives. So he resurrected the practice of polygamy and said, well, we ought to do that since that's what they used to do. He started to essentially recreate Old Testament religion in his own eyes, and it was this new found faith. Now you're wondering, where is Jesus in all of this? I left out the most significant, crazy part of the Book of Mormon. You want to know what's the biggest chapter of the book? The people get on that boat. They sail across the ocean blue long before Columbus, and, or long before Columbus in 1492. They settle down, but before they die off, somebody shows up to them. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who had resurrected from the dead before ascending to the Father, they believe teleported over to the United States, Star Wars style, I guess, and just showed up and revealed himself to the Mormons in the United States. And there he taught them true religion. That's where, for example, Mormon, that prophet, got a lot of his teaching that he ended up putting in to the Book of Mormon that Joseph Smith discovered so many years later in 1823, buried in that hill called Kumora. This is the shoots of Mormonism, and now Joseph Smith has a real religion. He's got something that he's proud of, and so he starts teaching it. But what do you think started to happen in Puritan New England when this weird guy starts walking around telling everybody you should have as many wives as you want, and you should worship in a temple, and you should... Uh, call yourself a Mormon. They didn't like it. 
So they kicked him out of town. And he ended up having to escape New York, and he went to a little town near Cleveland, Ohio, called Kirtland, Ohio. To this day, it's a major Mormon point of history. He ends up getting kicked out of that town, and he makes his way all the way over to a suburb of Kansas City, Missouri, Independence, Missouri. I'm actually from Independence, Missouri, and I find this hilarious because do you want to know why he, found, he made Independence, Missouri a significant place for Mormonism? <clears throat> because he believed that Independence, Missouri was where God originally planted the Garden of Eden. Now, folks, have any of you been to Independence, Missouri? I'm sorry. It is no Garden of Eden. It's a lovely town, don't get me wrong, but it is no luscious landscape. I don't know why they believe that, but to this day, there's a significant Mormon temple there. There's a heavy presence of Mormonism. It's actually a sect of Mormonism today, largely different from that which is in Salt Lake City. But Independence, Missouri, significant place where Mormonism is practice. Then they had to escape there. They actually backtracked a little, went up to the Mississippi River, and landed in this little town called Nauvoo, Illinois, about three hours north of St. Louis on the uh, Mississippi River. And there in Nauvoo, they ended up really rooting down, and they started to live together, and they started to actually publish stuff. But a local newspaper didn't like it and started to preach against them. And they ended up getting in this fight, and long story short, uh, Joseph Smith and his brother uh, end up getting thrown into jail and end up getting killed by a mob in this jail in Nauvoo, Illinois. And most of you might be wondering, why wasn't that the final chapter in the story of Mormonism? If Joseph Smith, the famed prophet who brought all of this to bear, if he died so ignominiously, how did it continue? Well, it continued because Joseph Smith had a right-hand man, and I bet you you know his name. In fact, his name is arguably as famous, if not more famous, than Joseph's. You ever heard of Brigham Young? Probably have from Brigham Young University. Brigham Young was his associate who took on the mantle of leadership of Mormonism upon Joseph's death, and he decided we got to get out of Nauvoo. And we got to head west, where everybody else was going, by the way, in the 1800s. <coughs> we got to get out to the west. And so they just begin this long, arduous journey, escaping their troubles. And they're going to go find their own new promised land, their own home in the American west. And so as they make their way out, one day Brigham reaches a beautiful vista. And as he peers over and views this great landscape, he declares, this will be our home. And that landscape upon which his eyes fell was the modern-day city of Salt Lake City. And there he established Mormonism that has abided to this very day. In fact, if you go to Salt Lake City, there you will find a great Mormon square where there is the big temple, which is kind of the main headquarters temple. There's a big uh, domed building. It's elongated, but it's a big dome right next door, and that's where the famed Mormon Tabernacle Choir sings inside, and they do a bunch of their conferences. To this day, over uh, almost 60% of the citizens of Utah identify as Mormons. It's a significant Mormon uh, hub. In fact, it is the central place where Mormonism abides to this day. And so that now brings us to the question of having traced the story, 
who are these people? What do they teach? Uh, what is it? We, the story's a little weird, I'll grant that, but what are they actually teaching? Let's start with where they base their teaching, and then let's tease out what they actually believe. Let's go to their sources. What are their sources of authority? What are those books that they really lean on? Well, the first one, as you might expect, is the Book of Mormon. Now, here's a little trick. If you want to know what a book is about, don't read the title. It rarely tells you what you want to know. Do you want to know what piece of information always tells you what you want to know about any book? The most helpful piece of information to understand a book is its subtitle. That's just a little insider trick. Subtitles, they're almost always longer, but they're always clearer. And the reason the subtitle is not the title of a book is because the publisher usually just wants a shorter, pithier title for the actual title. Subtitle tells you a lot. And did you know the Book of Mormon has a subtitle? that should tell you a lot. You can see it on your notes. The subtitle to the Book of Mormon is Another Testament of Jesus Christ, which shouldn't that be sending alarm bells off in your mind already? This is in truth, another testament altogether, testifying something foreign to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The Book of Mormon, as I've already described, is this book found in the mountain that was written by the prophet Mormon so many years ago, detailing the history of God's people escaping Israel and coming to the United States where they met Jesus, died off, and finally got resurrected by Joseph Smith himself. Now, Joseph talked a lot. A lot of his remarks were written down, and there were a couple books that recorded a lot of his comments. One of the books was entitled Doctrine and Covenants. You can find that on Amazon. And then another book entitled The Pearl of Great Price, both of which just have a bunch of facts and figures and factoids and funny little things that he taught and believed. You'll find in those books some of the strange teachings like abstaining from caffeinated beverages, etc. But there is a fourth book that might shock you as one of their significant sources of authority. They believe in the King James Bible. If the king ain't on it, the king ain't in it. Except it's not precisely what you might think. When they claim the King James Bible, here's, well, here's essentially what they mean. They basically mean that, well, you know, we think the Bible's been corrupted. We really don't know what it actually says. If we had the original, we would know, but since we don't, we don't know. So we believe in an annotated version of the King James Bible. We believe in a version of the King James Bible that Joseph Smith helped us think through. And this version of the King James Bible that Mormons will give any credit to, it has annotations, which by the way, an annotation is just like a little note in the margin. It has notes in the margin that say, for example, in Genesis 50, which the end of the book of Genesis tells the story of Joseph, it'll give a little note in the margin that says something like, the prophet I will bless and his name shall be called Joseph. And they think that that prophet is not Joseph of the Old Testament, but Joseph Smith, who was to come. Weird little notes like that. Those are the sources of authority. But you're going to discover that most of what they teach is so foreign to the Bible, you may be wondering if they ever actually read it. And I don't know the answer to that, but I can say what they believe they surely didn't find there. Let's tease out now together, what do they believe? Let's do a very quick crash course in their key doctrines they believe. Let's start with one of the most important ones, and that would be the doctrine of God himself. Let me take a drink of water, everybody.
My voice is hanging on by a thread. First, as they conceive, God is not a trinity. They believe that he is three separate gods. They would say it is not God the Father, Son, and Spirit. They would say that it is three different gods altogether, three distinct beings. Now let's tease out what they believe about these beings. Here's where it gets really weird. They believe God has a name, Elohim. Now you might be thinking, well, hey, preacher, isn't that God's name? Well, yes, that is true. Elohim is a name for God that is not the only name for God. There are many names for God used in the Bible. They believe Elohim is the proper name for God the Father. And they believe Elohim was once basically a human who lived a great life, earned his way to glory, and was rewarded with becoming a god. And his reward as a god is since that day, he has been enjoying one giant cosmic party. I use the word party because the word I want to use is inappropriate. He's been enjoying one big party for the last many, many years where he has been doing nothing but conceiving children with a bunch of other women. And every single person that lives on God's green earth today is a child that was conceived by Elohim. We are children of God insofar as we are actually spirit children that were reared by Elohim having a cosmic tryst with one of those women up in heaven. I know that's a little odd. Now, if that's true, then that means you and I are maybe child number 50 billion, 100 million, 305, or whatever. Who was child number one? What was the first child that Elohim had? Well, this is where they love to borrow from the Bible. They're like, well, you know what? The Bible says, who was the firstborn of all creation? Jesus. So they teach that Jesus Christ was the firstborn child of Elohim. I'm the 10th billionth. He was the first. Guess who the second one was? Satan. And so they'll believe they're like these cosmic uh, twins warring, vying for primacy, authority. Jesus. Let's talk through Jesus for a second. What does Mormonism believe about Jesus? Because now you're telling me that Jesus is kind of like this person. He was basically just... He's just a spirit child like the rest of us. That's what they believe. They believe that Jesus was the first spirit child of the Father, and he progressed to deity like the rest of us can. He lived a really good life, became God. But here's where it gets weird. Once he lived a really good life and became God, only then was he conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And then that's when he came to earth again and ended up doing the ministry that we all know. He is, in truth, they teach the elder brother of all mankind. That would include Satan himself. He actually had the name Jehovah, not Elohim, prior to the incarnation. So they would say every time the name Jehovah is mentioned in the Old Testament, that's referencing Jesus, not referencing the Father. They believe that Jesus fathered many children with Mary, Martha, Mary Magdalene. You know, he's, he's a chip off the old block, just like his dad. And after resurrection, 
he came to the Americas to basically preach the gospel to the American Indians who were the new chosen people of God. Isn't that an interesting, interesting, wild view of Jesus? Any of y'all a little shocked? You're like, my word, you know, I didn't, I didn't know people believe this. Interesting. Let's talk about what they believe about man. One interesting view Mormons have about mankind is that they believe men basically possess the same potential as God the Father possessed to progress to becoming a God. We're just a bunch of spirit beings that have the ability to live a really good life and become a God one day, which is really interesting because that means official Mormon theology is that every person can become a God one day. Which, if you do the math, that means Mormonism is not a monotheistic religion. It's as polytheistic as Hinduism, if not more so. Hinduism teaches there's 300 million gods. Mormonism teaches there's countless billions. If every person, every spirit child, has it within their ability to progress to become a god one day. So then let's think through, how do you do that? What's the concept of sin and salvation in Mormonism? Well... On the one hand, here's what's really weird about sin in Mormonism. They believe that when Adam sinned in the garden, it was actually a, a noble act. And here's why they think it was noble. Because when Eve ate the fruit first, Adam had a dilemma on his hands. He could either do it with her or he could reject her. Well, he ended up eating it with her. And the reason they say that that was actually a good thing was because when Adam decided to sin alongside of his wife, it enabled Adam and Eve to have children as fallen men and women who could come and finally be freed from the spirit world, become human beings, and have the ability now to earn their way into becoming a god. Because you can't earn your way to godhood in the spirit world I don't know why, but you can't. You can only earn your way to God if you leave the spirit world and become a person. And if Adam and Eve had not sinned and decided to have children together, then that would have never been possible. So it's as if Adam fell upwards. He didn't even know what he was doing, but he fell and made it possible for everybody to have a chance of escaping the spirit world and becoming a God of their own one day. Now, what did Jesus do? Why did Jesus save us in any meaningful sense? Well, they believe in one way in one sense that when Jesus died for us, he secured immortality for everybody. So this is a very fair statement in Mormonism. Everybody's saved. But it depends on the degree to which you're saved. In Mormonism, everybody is saved, but it depends on what kind of life you lived that will determine where you go. There are basically a few different types of heaven in Mormonism. Three levels, if you want to mark these down. The first level is what they would call celestial glory. Celestial glory. And this is the heaven that's reserved for Mormons and for good people who weren't aware of Mormonism. They never had access to it. But had they had access to it, they would have become good Mormons too. This is for good people. But what about those people 
who were Mormons but lived poor Mormon lives. You know, they were pounding Coca-Cola whenever they wanted. <laughs> or what about those people who were aware of Mormonism and rejected it, like you and me? Well, they get a second level of heaven. It's an inferior level of heaven. They don't get the celestial heaven. They get what's called the terrestrial heaven. Celestial means sky, heaven. Terrestrial means earth. Instead of the celestial glory, they get the terrestrial glory. This is for unworthy Mormons and for people that reject Mormonism altogether. But there's actually a third level. And this is for wicked people. This is their closest conception uh, to purgatory. That's called not terrestrial, but telestial. So instead of T-E-R-R-E-S-T-R-I-A-L, it's T-E-L-E-S-T-I-A-L, telestial glory. And that is the third lowest level of heaven, and it's basically similar to a Catholic conception of purgatory, where you can go and kind of like burn off some of your sins and eventually get your way to glory. There is a conception of actual hell, though, in Mormonism, and that's what they call the lake of fire, and they believe that it is reserved for the devil, for demons, and for those who commit the unpardonable sin which they don't have a very clear definition of. So I'm not exactly sure who they would categorize as having committed it. You know, Christians would generally, an orthodox understanding of the unforgivable sin would be unrepentant sin unto death. It would be unrepentantly rejecting Jesus Christ as your Savior. Mormons, it's not quite as clear. Final doctrine, just to note with Mormonism, is that they believe their church is the one true restored church. Mormonism represents Christianity refound, rediscovered. That Catholicism and Protestantism, evangelical Christianity, everything else in the great stream of the Christian faith is a corrupt perversion of the true church that was rediscovered by Joseph Smith so many years ago. And folks, I know this might strike you as odd, but to this very day, there are brilliant people, successful people, wonderful people. Mitt Romney and his wife seem like wonderfully kind people. There are folks who sincerely believe that Jesus showed up six, several hundred years ago to some American Indians in the United States, and one of the prophets buried this story in a hill in New York that didn't get discovered till 1823, and that there is coming a day that if they live a good life, they'll get promoted to glory and get to go do what Elohim did and basically be the god of their own planet and conceive spirit children for forevermore in one big cosmic party. This is an official doctrine of the Mormon church. And so that brings us to the final question we need to tease out tonight. And I'm going to let you guys go with a few minutes. You guys are going to never be more grateful for our horse throat with Pastor Kyler. I'm getting you out early. The final question we really need to chew on is, are, are Mormons members of a cult? Is this a cult? And brothers and sisters, I just want to fix to your heart now in conclusion tonight why I believe, and I say this with as much humility as I can muster, why I believe we must 
In fact, the most loving thing for us to do would be to clearly classify Mormons as a cult for the following reasons. They reject who God really is. They have rejected Christ who has revealed himself, or God who has revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ in the triune Godhead of Father, Son, and Spirit. They say they are three separate gods. They reject Jesus who lived the life we never lived, died the death that we deserve, rose and revealed himself to some 500 witnesses, ascended to the Father and is coming again, who declares that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They reject this. They not only reject who God is, they reject what God has said. They add to God's words. They say that God has sent additional prophets like the prophet uh, Mormon with this Book of Mormon, like the prophet Joseph Smith with the doctrines and covenants and the pearl of great price. They reject what God has said. They add to it. They reject who we are. They say we are these spirit beings that have it within us, the ability to become gods ourselves, that we are not irreparably broken and that we don't need the saving grace of the Lord, that we, just like everybody else in the world, basically have this get out of hell free card and if, as long as we live a good life, we can earn our way to a certain level of heaven. They reject what the Bible teaches we are and it finally rejects what we truly need, which is why we have great hope for Mormons. The Bible teaches that try as you might, you could never, ever earn your way to glory. There is not one shred of evidence in your life, long or short as it may be, that could ever commend you to a holy God. Praise God that ours is a gospel of grace where you, me, and Billy Graham will all stand shoulder to shoulder one day before his throne of grace, and my plea will be his. We will plea in one accord the blood of Jesus, and on that moment, Jesus Christ will make us stand, as Jude says, blameless before his presence with great joy. It will not be because of my might, my power, my virtue, my goodness. I will have the same cry that all of creation will have, and it will be glory to the lamb who was slain. That will be my only hope on that final day. And so we can bring that hope to Mormon folks who believe that they have it within their power to live good, moral, upright lives. And so that's my big takeaway to you tonight is after having studied this odd tale of Mormonism, my prayer is not that you leave here thinking, my Lord, those people are crazy. I don't want you leaving thinking that. I want you leaving with a broken heart saying, oh God, would you grant me an opportunity to have my path crossed with a Mormon so that I can help them see the hope I have, that they can be set free from the bondage of believing that they actually can merit their way to heaven? By the way, Mormons are some of the kindest most wonderful, upstanding citizens. These are wonderful folks. They may have kids on your ball team. They may be your next door neighbors, tremendous folks, but they are lost. And the most scary word in all the human language is the word lost. Because there are some people that are lost and you can tell. The drug addicts, the people that are living most outwardly perverse lifestyles, but folks, what's so insidious about the word lost, what makes, it, what makes it ought to shake you to your bones is that there are countless billions who are lost and don't know it. And you might not know it either because they look the part. They walk the walk. 
They are wonderful folks. And so ask that God would, by his grace, open your eyes to see lost, even the lost that don't look lost, and let them see the hope that you have, that Jesus Christ is not quite who you think he is. He is the eternal Son of God, one with the Father, who lived the life you and I never lived, died the death that you and I deserved, rose from the dead, securing for us the only hope you, me, any man, woman, or child could ever hope to have. And that hope is that you and I can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, on the authority of the Bible alone. And if you go in that confidence with this great hope, pray that the Spirit of God, which is one with the Father and Son, a member of the Godhead, will do what I cannot and you cannot. And that is take your faithful witness to the gospel and seal it to the soul of a lost heart and bring about a miracle that he one day many years ago brought about in you. And that's when he took our darkened heart and it was like a lightning bolt. He opened our eyes and we who were once blind now could see. I'm praying that God would use Hickory Grove to help Mormons in this community have their eyes be open to the light of the gospel of the glory of God, which is found in the person and work and face of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why don't you join me as we pray? And we'll call it a night, and we'll thank the Lord that he saw my voice through. And then uh, next week, hope you guys will be back. Uh, John Steg Merton will actually be teaching in my stead. He'll teach my lesson on uh, Seventh-day Adventism because I'll be just returning from the senior adult trip. Some of you may even be on it with us at, at the church, but I will come back for one final session with you guys. Uh, I guess it's in two weeks, and I'll be teaching on a most interesting cult that you might not be terribly familiar with, but go Google it. It's not Scientology. It's what's called Christian science. If you go down to Dilworth, there's a beautiful church right on the main drag in Dilworth neighborhood outside of Uptown. Beautiful, historic-looking colonial church. And it says Church of Christ, but then all of a sudden there's this weird comma, and there's an additional word. It says Church of Christ, comma, scientist. You ever seen that before? Any of you all ever seen a little storefront in a strip mall called a Christian science reading room? And you're thinking, what on earth is that? Is that like where Christians go and read science books? What is this? I thought that as a kid growing up in Oklahoma City. I saw one of those and thought, what is that? It's Christian science, which is one crazy crazy, crazy Christian cult that I'll come back and teach you guys in just a couple weeks. So Seventh-day Adventism next week, Christian science the week after. I hope you guys have enjoyed this study. I pray it's fruitful. Why don't you join me as we pray, and then we'll call it a night. Let's pray. Father in heaven, <coughs> thank you for seeing me through tonight, and I'm asking that you would allow anything I said that was uncharitable or unhelpful to be forgotten. And that which is useful and profitable, I pray that you would seal it to my soul and all who heard my voice. And would you raise us up to be faithful witnesses to the hope we have in you, especially to those Mormons who have been deceived. And I'm asking this in Jesus' name. Amen.